I'm Linda Gregg, and um, I accepted Christ when I was about 13 years old. Uh, I, my parents, none of nobody in my family were Christian, and they were in a mess. And I started going to a junior high Bible study before uh, junior high classes in the home of a, a lady from a church of a friend of mine, and I accepted Christ. And I began going to that church, um, and I saw missionaries come. And of all the people that I knew, no matter what presentation they gave, whether the slides were upside down or what they looked like, I realized that they had more purpose in their life than almost anybody else that I knew. And that's what I wanted God to do with me, was to use me in his service on the mission field somewhere, if that would be as well. So I began to prepare. I thought, well, I'll just be a teacher, and then I could go help missionary kids. And when I went away to North, I was from Arizona. When I went away to Northern Arizona University, my second year I met Herb, and he had just become a Christian one month before. And he also had missions on his heart. And we got married, and <clears throat> we had a little girl, Amy, and we went off to the mission field, Brazil, and we were there for two and a half years. Uh, a month after we got there, our little boy was born, Jason. Uh, after those two and a half years, God changed our direction. We went to Portugal for 14 years. We were in three different church planting ministries. And then Russia opened up. And uh, TEAM, we were with TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission. They challenged some of us more veteran missionaries to redeploy to Russia because they didn't know how long it would stay open. And Herb heard that, and boy, he was ready to go. And... Um, so uh, our daughter was already gone. Uh, we took our son with us that was a junior in high school to Moscow. We studied the language um, for one year, and then he went back to the States, and we went to Dagestan. Uh, four and a half years later, uh, I was sitting at the table uh, making dinner. Herb had gone to the orphanage, as he always did, with Christine, one of the single girls from our work. And Marat, one of the young men that um, did our music program, he was a teenager. And usually Alka went too. He didn't have a father, and Herb was trying to encourage and help him. And it was getting late. I was making mashed potatoes, and he wasn't coming, and I'm adding more milk, and they're getting all lumpy, and I'm thinking, oh, brother, when is he going to come? And But then time went on more. And I thought, oh, man, maybe I should be getting worried. And um, there was a knock on my door. And um, I went over to it, and it was and Marat, and they had been running up the three or four stairs to our house. And the first thing they said is, is Herb here? And I said, no, I thought he was with you. Then they didn't know what to say. And so I said, is, is something the matter? And they said, well, Herb and Alka were walking along the street and an accident happened. And I, I said, did they get run over? And Mara thought for a minute and he said, no, worse. And I thought, oh, my word, what could be worse? And then he said that some men had pulled Herb into a car and taken off with him. Well, that's one of those times when 
you think, will God be there when the ultimate bad thing happens in my life? And there was the day the bad thing happened in my life. It was the thing we dreaded the most, I dreaded the most, was something like that. And so I said to them, come on in and let's call the authorities. So we called the visa authorities. They said the police would be coming. So we went into the living room to pray, sat down, and I prayed first. And then afterwards, while they were praying, I remembered something God brought to my mind. Herb was kidnapped on Wednesday. And on Saturday, the Saturday before, we'd had a youth meeting. And um, it got over little bit early and we had some extra time so we said well why doesn't everybody just go around and share something they see God working in the lives of someone else when it got my turn I had this huge desire to tell Herb how much I loved him so I did I told him how much I loved him that he was the most faithful person to the Lord I knew in the big things the small things and these kids thought that was hilarious because it was so different than everything that they were saying about each other. And um, I didn't really know why I said it, but on Wednesday I did. All of a sudden I realized that if anything had happened to Herb, the thing I would feel the worst about was I hadn't been able to tell him that I loved him. And so I realized that God knew that. And on Saturday, God allowed me to say it. And the thing was that I realized also that as if he knew that on Saturday, I needed to say it because it was going to happen on Wednesday. Then God knew it was going to happen and that he was in it and everything was going to be okay. Well, my heart was beating like a freight train and it just calmed down. And um, I realized he was in it. Many things happened that showed me he was in it. Um, but uh, pretty soon the police came to the door came charging in. Um, they were the policemen from where I lived, and they came in. They wanted to know all the information, and I said, what information? They said, what room is this? I said, it's our bedroom. They said, what do you do there? I said, we sleep. I said, what's this room? That's the guest room. What do you do there? When we have guests, that's where they sleep. What's this room? This is our living room. You know, what do you do here? Well, we have company here, and... Um, What's this room? This is a dining room. What do you do there? This is where we eat. You know, where's this kitchen? Uh, what's this room? It's kitchen. You know, by then, I'm thinking, what is this? And then another knock on the door, and it was another group of policemen. And they were from the area of town that her was kidnapped from. They came charging in. They had a big fight over who was the ones in charge. And um, the first group left. The second group stayed. They started through the same thing, and I'm thinking, is this what Dagestani policemen do, is map out the house of the people where you are, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm like, it's a good thing my hope is not in these policemen. <laughs> but then I asked if anybody had thought about putting up a roadblock or whatever, you know? And so he got the main guy got on the phone. He called somebody. He called the president of the university to tell him, and... He talked to me and said, you know, they was so sorry, and they would do everything they could to get her about. And then um, the policeman got a phone call, and he said, Christine and Madat and I had to leave and go with them. And so we had to go down to the police station. So it was dark, and we 
there was a little tiny police car shoved the three of us in the back seat and the two policemen were in the front seat of like a mini <laughs> and off we go and all of a sudden I realized we're slowing down and we were over by where the orphanage was and we were right at the place where they thought her was kidnapped and they got out with their flashlights they're all looking around and then when they got back in the car, they told me that they were looking for Herb's sports bag. They thought maybe it got left there and that would give a clue. And I'm thinking, they brought me to the crime scene. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is a, really something. So then we ended up over at the um, police department and um, they were interviewing Alka. And you would have thought Alka was the one that had done the kidnapping. They were just interrogating him one side and up the other. And he, you know, they'd say, what did the guy look like? And he'd say, oh, he had a black cap on and he had a black jacket and black pants, you know. And so then the guy would write and write and write. I don't know what he was writing because he hadn't said very much. But God, that's how I found out what happened because Alka was actually there. And the men came up and they acted like they were police. And in the end, they actually were police, but they weren't in their uniforms. They'd been paid to do this. So anyway, um, Alka, the, the one guy tried to wrestle Herb. And yeah, actually, Alka jumped on his back and they shoved him off. They didn't want him because there was no money in him. And the other guy had to come and help. And he said it took about five minutes, but when they got Herb's feet up, then they could get him in the car. So they shoved him in the car, and he went over. He tried to see what kind of a car and license, but there weren't any license plates. And he ran back to the orphanage, and that's how I found out what happened to Herb. But um, the police there assured me that they were going to do everything that, I, that they could to get Herb out. And... Um, there happened to be a man there for something else that was from Moscow that was really in charge of everything, and he gave me an assurance, asked me if there's anybody that would do this, and I went home, and the mission wanted us to leave within, I don't know, as soon as we could, and yeah, we were doing a ministry among Muslim people, and we couldn't, in a Muslim community, you have to love people a lot as you're sharing the gospel, and we weren't finished, so we asked if we could just stay just a little bit. So they said, you can stay one day, and then the next day you have to leave. So uh, that night, I went to bed. Christine and Mara and his brother Timur, who was doing the preaching at our church, stayed in our house. And um, I went to bed, and I put my hand over on Herb's side of the bed where he wasn't. And I asked God wherever he was to take care of him. And, and I actually went to sleep. And then the next day, people from the church uh, and people from uh, came and people from all over Mahachkala and the villages because we taught English all over the place to um, English teachers from the villages and everything, they came flooding into our house, street people, I mean, street vendors and everything, and got a chance to just tell them. I mean, they wept over her being kidnapped because he had done nothing but try to help. And um, we got a chance to finish sharing the gospel, the people from the church as well as myself and Christine. And then um, they all left. The people from the church made food 
and we're just talking to these people and the news people came and uh, it was something. And then that evening, the church gathered and we had communion together and the church is still alive. We were meeting in a, um, a school because it started in a home, the church did, but they wanted to have a presence and it was very dangerous, but they were in a school. They don't, after her was kidnapped, they didn't meet in the school anymore, but we had them divided up into home groups anyway. And, um, and they, we had communion and Timor said that they had gotten together and talked and they wanted me to know that they realized that Herb was willing to give his life, that they could know Christ. And that was, they realized that it was their responsibility to, to reach the 34 people groups that were there, um, even if it meant their life, and that I should go, and that uh, they would be okay. And so the next day, they got in the, the bus that we used to go to the beach to baptize and everything, and this guy that wasn't a Christian, he took us all to the airport, and they all came rushing in. Nobody ever goes in, only if you have a ticket and a visa, but they all came in hugging and everything, and then Christine and I left, and it was like leaving my life, everything, our ministry, my husband, um, as the tears streamed down our, our eyes, we could hardly see the plane, but we got on the plane and, and went toward Moscow, and God was holding my heart, and we got to Moscow, and I had to meet with uh, the mission people and uh, go down to the American embassy, and then there was a new um, consulate general there. It was her first week there, and uh, I met with her. She was a wonderful Christian lady, and um, she sent an FBI man and a translator with Christine and I, and we went over to the Moscow Police Department and um, actually was interrogated, uh, as to what we were doing down in Dagestan because the, most of the Russian people don't like the Caucasus people very much. And, um, and so we said we went down there because the need was so great. There was 86% unemployment when we went down there. And it was just they were in a mess and spiritually and, and every way. And as we were down there, I told the man that was asking me everything. He said, what were you doing there anyway? And I said, well, we went down to help people. We were teaching English and we were working at an orphanage and we were doing all these things. And I think that we fell in love with the people and we didn't realize the danger that we were in. And he changed really his attitude after that. Uh, I had been talking through a translator, which was good, gave me time to think until he asked me that question. Then I answered him in Russian and he became very nice, and we finished the conversation, and the head lady, um, who was the head of the police, came up to me and told me that I needed to sign papers and that they would do the work of getting her out, which they did. They took on the responsibility, and they had a negotiator that I knew him as Mr. K, and he worked on Herb's release until the day he was released. And he had a heart attack in the meantime, right at the time Herb's finger was cut off, and that's part of the reason why Herb's finger was cut off, because they couldn't get in touch with the um, 
with the negotiator, but he actually got up off his heart attack bed and continued to the end. And he even offered to trade places with Herb. But Russia wasn't going to pay for him to get out either, so it never ended up happening. Um, but there was a trick involved, and he was involved in making the trick. And uh, he ingratiated himself to the people. And um, anyway, the lady said that I had to go home because I was the weakest link. I was the one that cared the most. And when somebody takes somebody uh, hostage, they hold everybody hostage. It's not just Herb, it's me, it's my family, it's the mission, it's the governments, it's the supporting churches, it's Christianity in general. Um, everybody was held hostage. And she said, but of all the people, you care the most, and that, so they'll try to contact you. And so I had to leave and come home to Arizona where, where my daughter and her husband, little boy, and my son was in college and he was engaged. And so I got on a plane with Christine, an Aeroflot, that we called Aeroflop, <laughs> a plane, and started my trip home. Every time we ever came home, you know, you feel you get there and you feel like kissing the ground, but this time I didn't quite feel the same way. I felt in free fall, but I knew that God was going to had his hands under me. So uh, they put on a movie. I didn't want to watch the movie. I didn't really want to listen to their music. And so this will date me, but we had a Walkman. And it was a real spiffy one. It would go back and forth. You didn't have to turn it around. So Herb had some tapes, uh, Praise uh, 6 or 8 or whatever it was. Um, and I thought, oh, that's what I want to listen to. So I put in the tape. And Christine had gone to sit somewhere else because she was going to watch the movie, and she has vision problems. She asked me if it was okay. I said, yes, I, I'd be just fine, you know. So I put that on. I thought, oh, I just have a little time with the Lord. And I'm, I'm, I want to tell you that it was the most amazing time of worship of my life. It was as I listened to the, the songs like Refiner's Fire and different things that were on that old tape, it was like I had never sung a song in my life, a Christian song, and meant anything compared to this day. This day, my heart was just totally so moved by the words, it began to be almost like I wrote the words. They issued from my heart. And um, something happened that I don't always share, but I, I think I, I will today because I have a little more time. Um, I was in this worship state, and um, I had never heard of this ever happening to anybody else. Afterwards, I read about Dwight Moody, <laughs> something like that happened to him. But all of a sudden, I was enveloped in a light. And it was not like light of the sun or light of a light bulb or light of a candle. It was this bright light, and all of a sudden, I realized that I was in the presence of the Lord. And um, it was like, God was started revealing himself to me one attribute at a time. And it's hard to explain what it was like because it wasn't even with words. It was kind of like osmosis into me. I just knew. He was just revealing himself to me, and I just knew. And what it produced in me was a, a, a deep sorriness for 
not being who I should to be in his presence, I, I kept thinking, oh, God, you know me. I shouldn't be here. And I, I just felt sick in my stomach and doubled over. And yet he just kept revealing himself to me. And, um, but I kept thinking as it's going on, oh, God, I shouldn't be here. And then it was just like a, he did say, um, yes, it's, but you're here because I love you. And, and because of Jesus. And so it, he just kept revealing himself to me. And, and in that knowing of him, it was, it was just amazing because of who, who he is and who I saw myself as. A lot of times I think we think of God about a little higher than Santa Claus. And um, during this time, it wasn't Santa Claus-ish. It was God Almighty revealing himself to me. And um, I, I remember thinking, oh, God, I shouldn't be here. And then I did hear what he had to say. He said, yes, you're right. You shouldn't here be here, but you're here because I love you. And then it was like waves of the ocean just pouring onto me. And to the point where I thought, God, if you don't stop, I'm just going to self-destruct here. Just... And so, uh, and then three thoughts came to me. The first one was, oh, God, if this is the way you are, and you are, then just, and you take Herb, just take me too. It wasn't that I had anything wrong with my life other than my husband had been kidnapped. But I just, I just wanted to go to be with him. And um, God totally released me that if he took Herb, it would be okay. I mean, it would be more than okay. It would be the best. The second thought I had was, you know, I know why we grieve. I mean, my grandson passed away, and I know that we miss people. But somehow we don't quite get who God is and where Christians are going when they die. Or we would be having the biggest celebration we have ever. And I thought, oh, it would be great much bigger than wedding in my mind. I'm thinking this as I'm talking to God about it all. Um, and, and yet I think he only gave me a tiny little drop of who he is, but it just blew my mind. And the third thing I thought was, God, this is the way I, I always have wanted to know you, but I, the means to the end is always getting in the way. I don't get, and I thought, can you just get my head up so that I can see you like you are? Um, and all of a sudden, I realized I could hear the music again and that I hadn't been hearing the music. And I'm trying to hang on to the music, and the light is fading because I'm trying to hang on to God, And but it, it was going. And then all of a sudden, I thought, oh, God, I know who... Paul saw when he was caught up into heaven. And I know who Stephen saw when they, when they stoned him because I felt like I was seeing God just like Stephen did. And I know who Moses saw up on the mountain. And then Christine bumped me. And I, I thought, uh, I looked at her and I said, Christine, and she said, Linda, are you okay? And I said, Christine, do you see anything with my face? Because I thought that my face was probably shining like Moses's was. <laughs> so I, I said, do you see anything with my face? And she said, she looked at me real good, and she said, no, it looks okay to me. <laughs> 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 so, 
So then, you know, I was, I wanted to tell her what happened because she asked me. And I, but because it didn't happen with words, I couldn't even tell her. I'd start to say a, a sentence and it just seemed so small that I couldn't get it out. And she said, well, you know, I saw you crying and I saw your hands up, but I knew that you weren't crying about Herb. I knew you were worshiping. And um, so I had to leave it at that. And we ended up getting home to, to Wheaton, Illinois where team's headquarters is, and I was there for a couple of days, and then I went to Arizona, and I was um, with my daughter and her husband and my little grandson, and my son was in and out, and um, and I, as the days went along, and I'm praying for Herb, and I'm wondering, I knew that Herb would be faithful. Whatever God gave Herb, I knew he would be faithful, but I'm thinking, what do you want for me oh, during all this time? What should I be doing? What do you want to teach me? So um, I started asking him to show me what it was that he wanted from me. And um, one day I was having a quiet time in Romans 5 where, um, I got to change the glasses. Where I'd read bunches and bunches of times this passage where it says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. It's um, Romans 5.3. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I'm meditating on that. And all of a sudden I realized that I had never seen the word produces in there. So that I could glory through the tribulation because God was trying to produce something. And when I got to perseverance, it had been long enough that I was feeling that I was learning perseverance and, um, of course, character. And the, the second one, hope, I, I started really doing a little study on that, and it actually talks about uh, the meaning is eternal hope. And um, there where it says in verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us in the rest of chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. It's talking about how our hope is in Jesus because he saved us. He's, he's reconciled us. He's justified us and we're his. And the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. So we have eternal hope. No matter what happens, we our hope can be eternal. So I realized that God was actually going to trying to produce something in me, and perseverance was one of them, and to hang on to hope that's eternal. And then I was having a quiet time a few days later, and it was the part where Jesus was in the boat, um, not the one that Herb was referencing, but where he was asleep and the storm came up. And um, and the disciples got all afraid they were going to die, so they woke him up, and he got up, calmed the seas, and then he said to them, Oh, you have little faith. And as I was having my quiet time, I realized, Oh, God, that's what you have for me. And the requirement or the task was to stay in the boat and believe that he was going to get it to the other side without freaking out.
And that freaked me out. And so I asked him, please help me. I actually realized that there was some kind of a heavenly battle over whether I was going to do that or not. So I asked him to please help me that I would be able to have the strength to believe him that no matter what happened, he was going to get that boat to the other side and that I could trust him. And um, from the experience that I had in the plane, God had put a deep strength down in me that's with me today. But it wasn't like as the, the roller coaster of dealing with the State Department and the mission and all the people and stuff wasn't like a roller coaster for me emotionally. And so it was uh, one of the prayers in my heart that I would just believe that God was going to get the boat to the other side. And then after a little while, the, the next thing that happened was a ladies group asked me to please fill in for a Bible study. And they asked me to use the section of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I said, Ecclesiastes? Oh, brother, are you sure? Such an, I always thought, oh, that's the most negative book in the whole Bible. And so, you know, please, couldn't I do something else? And um, she goes, nope, they're right, you know, on the verses 9 through 15 or something like that. And they already had what's before, and their next week's going to be what comes after, and this is you right there. So I started reading Ecclesiastes, and God did one of the neatest things in my life to help me during that time and all the time since. It's, it's the section where it says everything has its time. And so, you know, it's the time to be born, a time to die and everything. And I actually knew all of that. But when it got to the point where I was supposed to be, uh, I never seen this before. It says in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And I'm thinking, what a confusion of facts in that, that little verse. And so I started asking him to help me to understand it. And so I'm thinking, he has made everything beautiful in its time, and all different versions, what it said, God has made everything beautiful in its time, in his time. And I'm thinking, uh, even kidnapping and cancer and my little grandson's birth with uh, genetic defects and all the things. And yes, yes, and all of the things. Is everything beautiful? No. Can he make everything beautiful? Yes, and he does. And it's a, actually a promise. And the second part goes along with it, except that, oh, nope. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. You know, I think God knows that we need the eternal perspective in this life. The, the third part says, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You know, in our life, so many things come and go in the temporal part of our lives that we can't really know what God's doing. But we can hang on to the point, the fact that in all of the struggles that we have, He's going to make something beautiful out of it. And he's, we can take it to the bank <laughs> that he is. And um, this part about the eternity 
in our hearts threw me back to Romans 5.3 where it said that he's trying to produce perseverance, character, and hope, and it's eternal hope. So what he's trying to do is get us to not have our eyes on the physical things that happen in this life, but on the eternal things, the thing uh, that our hope would be fixed on that. So I think he gave me this great illustration. Let's pretend that I am inviting you to a party on Friday, and it's going to be a feast. And I ask all of you what your favorite food is, and I promise that we're going to have it. So what would happen? Weeks going along, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Linda's big feast. And so Friday's approaching, and you're thinking, oh, maybe I'll get my hair cut or done or whatever, you know, and put on something nice. And some of you think, oh, if we're going to have that big of a feast, I think I won't even eat today. So nice and hungry. And we're going to be here at the church. So you come at 6 o'clock, like I said, come in. Everything looks like this. And up here, there's a table at a big basket. So you come in, and you look in that basket, and you think, there's Cheez-Its in the basket. <laughs> and you think, she said we were going to have everything we ever loved to eat. Cheesecake. Where's the cheesecake? Uh, Cheez-Its. I don't even like Cheez-Its. What would happen? Everybody would start griping. Gripe, gripe, gripe. She said it was going to be this, and look what we get. Cheez-Its. Don't like Cheez-Its. I'm hungry. I didn't even eat. Look, I spent money on my hair. And I would come in, and i say, oh, this isn't the banquet. This is just the appetizer. The banquet's over in the chapel. And just a little bit, we're going to go in there. And I'm telling you, it's going to be amazing. And there'll be all the time we need to eat all of the things that we love. Just have to wait a little bit. Well, you know what? That is the picture of our life. And it is the picture of this verse. We cannot live this life like it's the banquet. This life is not the banquet. This life is the appetizer. It's the Cheez-Its. We may not even like Cheez-Its. <laughs> but it's temporary. The things that happened to us. I got MS about 23 years ago, 24 maybe, when we were first went to, to Russia from uh, Portugal. And it's the appetizer. I have had to drag this leg around all these countries and to now, and yet when I think about it, it's only the appetizer, and one of these days I'm going to run again. And so our hope needs to be on the eternal. Well, to finish the story here, it rolled around January, I mean, June 29th, 1999. And um, I had thought, from things that were going on. I knew when his finger got cut off and stuff. Uh, I'm thinking, I think he's not really going to get out. I was more on that side, that maybe he wasn't. Uh, and so I asked, uh, I had two men that, that called me and helped me. One from team, his name was John Jackson, and one from the State Department, his name was Bill Daniels. And, um, and John Jackson was to call me if Herb ever got out. But it would only be him that would, from team, that would call and tell me so nobody could trick me into talking to somebody I shouldn't talk to. So I'm in bed, 6 o'clock in the morning, Arizona sunshine coming in my window, 
uh, bright, sunny day, and the phone rings. And I think, oh, I've overslept. So I grab the phone and act like I'm awake, and I said, hello. And um, it was Bill Daniels. So he says, hi, Linda, how are you? I said, oh, fine. (laughs) And so I said, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm really great. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, I have good news. He had told me he had good news one other time, so I didn't know what good news he could be giving me this time. The other time he told me, he told me, remember Herb told you there were four little heads? His good news was Herb's head wasn't one of them. So when he told me there was good news, you never knew what, what the good news might be. But I didn't expect that he would tell me that Herb was out of captivity because he wasn't the one that was supposed to tell me. So anyway, he, he said, um, I said, oh, really? I'm thinking, good news. Oh, what is it? You know, and he said, Herb is out. And I'm thinking, out? I never thought out, out. I thought, knocked out? What could he be talking about? You know, so I said, well, I don't understand. He said, I said, what do you mean? And he said, I mean that Herb is on a jet right now, winging his way toward Moscow. Oh, my gosh. I came up out of that bed like levitation. It was, it was like every good thing that ever happened to me in my life. The day I accepted Christ, had my babies, got married, all gathered together in one huge ball of joy, I came up out of that bed, and I said, I was screaming, Daddy's out! Daddy's out! My whole family was there. So I ran out into the hall, and my daughter and her husband and our little grandson and my son and his fiance were dancing around, shouting, praising the Lord, crying, hugging each other, down on our knees, when all of a sudden I realized I still had the phone. Um, And so I said, oh, Bill, I'm sorry. He wasn't a Christian. He's the one that told me he didn't think that there was 1% chance Herb would ever get out because he was being held in Chechnya. He was the only American they ever got. And we were Christian missionaries in Dagestan, which they thought was their territory. And so um, he said, uh, and I had told him my hope was in the Lord, and he had said I was going to need it. So on this day, he said, I am so glad that this is the way it turned out. And in a little while, Herb's going to call. So... um, I was so thankful, and we were waiting for him to call, and then he did call. As soon as he got off the plane, uh, there, they took him to the embassy, and he did call me. But what happened to me was, within an hour, I was on my way to Wheaton, because uh, two of the men from the member care were going to meet me at the airport and go with me to London to meet Herb in London. Uh, He was flown to Moscow where he had some kind of a debriefing thing and they cut off his beard and everything and then he went on to to London too the next day. So anyway, I got on this plane and I was so full of joy and whatever, the poor lady sitting next to me, I must have looked like a Cheser cat that ate the whatever. And so finally she said to me, you seem awfully happy. Man, I just let it rip. I told her everything that ever happened. (laughs) And by the end, she was laughing and praising the Lord, and I didn't even think she was a Christian, and um, and hugged me and said that she'd be thinking of me and praying for me, and so then I met the two guys at the airport, and they had pictures. They had those pictures um, to show me, and 
uh, when I saw what Herb looked like, I couldn't believe it. And uh, I thought, I had worried after I knew they cut his finger off that he wouldn't be the same, that spiritually and emotionally he just wouldn't be the same. But um, I read what the article said, and the article had said that when he came down out of that plane, they interviewed him like they did of that one little bit on the thing. And uh, the last question they asked him was, if you could send a message to your captors, what would the message be? And he thought about it, and then he said, I would tell them that God really loves them. And that was the message that he had tried to get across to them the whole time he was in captivity. And I realized at that time, he's okay. He's okay. If he can say that, he's okay. So I got on the plane with them. We went to London, went behind. They let me go behind in the customs, and I'm waiting for him to come. And they had a partition, and I could see the entourage coming, and some of the taller men were there. And my heart was beating out of my chest. And he came around the corner, and he, he had had the beard cut off and was so thin, and was kind of bent over. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he looks like he's about 90 years old. And, and he had this little neck. This little, and I looked at his neck, and I thought, oh, his neck looks like a little chicken neck. <laughs> and, um, and then, and I was worried, and then I looked in his eyes, and in his eyes were such love and joy and peace and strength that it reminded me of God on the plane. And I realized that he had been with God, the same God that came to me and kept me, had kept him and been with him the whole time. And you could see it in his eyes. So he came to me. We hugged. They let us go into a little room and hug. We couldn't even talk. And then we went. uh, They took us to a five-star hotel. We'd never been in a five-star hotel before. And um, the next day we came down for breakfast, and um, Herb had five plates of food. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. And the guy from team said, Herb, you can't eat that. You're going to be sick. He said, I'm going to eat this and I am not going to be sick. And he continued to eat. He gained a pound a day for 40 days and he was fine. And during our debrief, which they had for us, which is just, he told psychiatrists and, and other people, mission people and Bible people and everything, what happened to him? I said, what happened to me? And it was just, we went through this whole thing. And they had a medical part, and so they looked at his finger, and when they cut it off, they stuck it in hot paraffin wax that cauterized it. But it was really effective. It was, they said it couldn't have been cut at a better place, although when we got to Mayo Clinic in Arizona, they did have to trim it down so that the skin would go over. But um, there was no infection. Um, he had had nothing but white bread and boiled macaroni twice a day for all that time, and his nothing in his blood counts were lower than low no, normal, not even iron, and he hadn't had anything with iron in it. And so the, the protection was really complete. As he was sharing what happened to him and I was observing him, I realized that God's protection had been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had been in the fiery furnace, and 
Jesus had been with him. And when he got out, he didn't, he wasn't burned and he didn't smell like smoke. Um, it was so complete. And I think the message for us today is that God is the same today that he was in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as surely as he was with Daniel in the lion's den, as sure as he was with David when Saul was trying to kill him, as sure as everybody, everything, at the time of creation itself, God is the same today, and we don't have to worry. But what we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. I, you know, in Romans, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where it says that... Um, that uh, he, we're in a race he's, and that, that he's put each one of us in a race and every one of our race is different. This is what we talked about in Dagestan before I left. Each one of them is in a, a race. Herb was in a race different than mine. Mine's different than his or yours. Or, but we're all in a race together and um, slightly different, but we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and um, not on the, the temporal things that happen, but serving him, loving people, a cup of cold water, giving people the gospel, all the things that are eternal, that our hope and our lives would be spent on those things, and um, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that he's put before us until we run right into his arms, and then the banquet will begin.